the grand finale of Ephesians. I'm going to finish it today. Ephesians 6. We have completed, really at this point, the teaching section of Ephesians. And it's kind of easy when you get to the end of a letter in particular to get to a place where you kind of just get to this section and you breeze through it because, oh, well, like I could get up here and say, okay, Ephesians 6, 21 through 24, I could read it and go, Paul says goodbye. All right, let's take the Lord's Supper. But we could do that. And I think the tendency is sometimes to do that when we read our Bible because it's not the doctrinal section. It's not a teaching or instruction section. But clearly God put it in his word. So it's part of the inspired word of God. There are things there for us that are, are meaningful. And so while we've completed the teaching section of Ephesians and we've learned who we are in Christ, we've learned how to live in a way that's worthy of those awesome riches we have in Christ, and we've learned how to use the equipment God gives us to stand our ground and take ground back from the enemy, having armed the Ephesians with that knowledge and us by proxy, Paul does now say his farewells. But in his farewell, we see the loving bond between Paul and the Ephesians, a bond that exists because the church is a family. And so as Paul deals with some family matters here at the end, may we see that our church family matters as well. So chapter 6, we begin in verse 21. Paul says, but that you may also know my affairs and how I do, Tychicus, a beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, shall make known to you all things, whom I have sent unto you for the same purpose that you might know our affairs, and that he might comfort your hearts. Peace be to the brethren and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And grace be with all them that love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. Amen. The word but here stands in contrast to what he has just said. He's been talking about prayer, and he's been talking about his personal prayer requests. We discussed the last couple of weeks how prayer is communicating with God. Communicating with God's important. It's one of our weapons. But what, when Paul says, but, that you may also know my affairs, he says communicating with our brothers and sisters is also important. Communicating with God's important, but communicating with our brothers and sisters is also important. So he says, but that you may also know my affairs and how I do. Communicating with God, the, the idea that, I, I want, but in order that you might know my affairs. In other words, communicating with God accomplishes something different than communicating with one another. Communicating with the Lord is, is part of our relationship with Him. It's part of our, our weaponry, our equipment in battle. But communicating with one another serves a different purpose, that we might know one another. And that's what he says here, that you might know my affairs. Literally means you might completely know everything I'm going through and everything I'm experiencing, how I do, everything I'm experiencing. Paul wanted their prayers. In verses 19 and 20, he gave them a small update of his life in prison. He says, listen, there's been a lot of closed doors to share in the gospel. Pray for me that God opens some doors, that God gives me something specific to say to the people who don't know him in my prison scenario. But Paul also wanted them to know all the details about his situation beyond just that, something that wouldn't fit into a letter. Now, that tells me something about their relationship that this is not just a formal teacher-student type relationship. It's not just a formal, I'm the leader and you follow relationship. It also implies that the Ephesians are interested in more than just learning instruction, that they loved Paul, that they had a relationship with him and probably with some of the people on his ministry team. In other words, that they were family. 
and that they wanted to know all the details of how their family member was doing. That Paul sends someone to inform them of all those details shows them that he wants them to know all those details. Now, it's not likely that you share all the details of your life with every person you meet. I would even say that may not be the healthiest thing to do because not every individual is going to be able to handle your heart. For sometimes folks who get hurt real easily, it's because they long for those relationships and they just kind of blah. And again, there's nothing wrong with that in safe relationships where someone loves you no matter what. But sometimes when it's not the case, you can share your whole heart and someone's not ready for that and you end up getting hurt. There's one person I say everything to, and that's the Lord. And then there's another person I say most everything to, and that's my bride. But I don't come to my kids and go, kids, this happened this week and financially we're in a mess and I don't know what to do. I don't need my four-year-old going, ah, that's not for them to know. There would be times when our kids would go, well, dad, I know that, I know it's really expensive to fix this or whatever. And I'm like, you don't worry about that. Go to bed and think about what you're going to do tomorrow with your friends. Worry about school. You know, you worry about those things. Don't you worry about that. Mommy and daddy take care of that because God takes care of us. I don't need to bear my heart. I might go in and weep on my wife's lap because what are we going to (laughs) do? I'm not going to do it with them. They don't need to know that. So the fact that Paul says, I don't want you to just hear about the fact, hey, I've got some prayer needs. I want you to know everything that's going on. It implies that he wants them to know that he's comfortable sharing it with them, that he viewed them as family too. And, you know, when we look at the human race as a whole, We know that God did not design human beings to live in isolation. I mean, if the pandemic taught us anything, it's, man, that was miserable. And even for us introverts, like when the whole thing started, us introverts were kind of like, this is great. I don't have to do people. But even after just a couple weeks of that, like we were like, I hate this. Because no one is designed to be in isolation. You will be miserable if you live life that way. So, okay, take a little bit of an aside for just a second, okay? Even if you're like, I don't do people well, or I have social anxiety or things like that, I get all those things. I am an introvert. If I had a book in my hand on most days and and just a couch or a chair, I'd be great most days, right? But let me tell you what happens if that's all I do. I get so self-absorbed and so down and so just everything's awful. I need other people in my life. I need to give my life away to other people. I need to get outside of myself and not be self-absorbed like that. So even though I don't gravitate necessarily towards social situations because of my personality, I need that. We were designed to interact with other people. And so if as human beings, whether you're a Christian or not, we're designed to be that way, that means that God did not design Christians to live in isolation with their Christianity. He didn't design us that way. You might be the, like the only person at your job who's a Christian, or maybe the only person in your family who's a Christian, but you are certainly not the only Christian in this city. And, and, the, and the fact that you're here and you're not, it's just me and you talking, means there's other people in this city who have said, I'm a believer. So we don't have to go it alone. I was curious, as I was thinking about this concept of needing each other and stuff, how many times the phrase one another appears in the New Testament? And I was blown away. That phrase, now there's other ways you can say that phrase that aren't worded exactly like that, but that phrase alone appears over 40 times in the New Testament. Almost all of them in the letters. 
Letters which, for the most part, are written to churches, local congregations of people who gather publicly together. Christianity is meant to be practiced amongst brothers and sisters. Those relationships are meant to be more than, hi, how are you doing, you know, when you see each other on a Sunday. That is not, Christianity, that's not it. Now, the Bible does tell us to greet each other, right? It says, hey, greet one another. We should do that. So when you come, you should be saying hi to people. We should do that. But the Bible also commands us to do other things. Now, I might be saying, Pastor Will, doesn't it say greet each other with a holy kiss? You are right, it does. That's in a Middle Eastern society where they do the, we don't do that here. I mean, if you're Latino, maybe you do, or maybe you're Greek or something like that, you do that. But for the most part, we don't do that. So I don't want to see anybody kissing each other, all right? I remember I would go on mission trips down to Latin America and four different countries, and it's all the same. You know, the ladies all come up to you and then, you know, I'm like, oh! You know, <laughs> it's only one woman who kisses me. And, uh, it's just weird. It's different. It's out of my culture. I got used to it after a while because you realize it's a, it's a very chaste kiss. That's why it's called the holy kiss. It's, there's nothing romantic or, or anything like that about it at all. I am, if you didn't know it, my last name is Ramirez. So I, my father's father is Puerto Rican. That's where it all stops. I don't speak Spanish, but I can, I do have rhythm. So... in there, in the DNA somewhere. But when we were, Beverly and I were dating, because everyone knew my last name, she has somewhat of an olive complexion, a little bit more so when we were out and about more. And so we would hold hands and we were dating in high school and they thought we were brother and sister, because that's what siblings do in a Latino culture. So yes, it says that, but again, I don't want to see people kissing each other outside. So when we talk about all the one another's here, the Bible tells us more than just to greet each other. It also commands us to love one another, to prefer one another, to not judge one another in matters of personal conviction, to receive one another, to admonish one another, to serve one another, to not bite and devour one another, to be patient with one another, to forgive one another, to teach one another, to comfort one another, to edify one another, to exhort one another, and to consider one another in order to provoke them to love and good works. If we're going to do those things, that requires being interested in one another and being involved in one another's lives. It's more than just the, hi, how are you doing? It's more than just greeting. And so before we even get into Paul's family interaction with them, does being interested in others and involved in their life accurately describe your Christianity? Or is it just you? And, or maybe just you and your family? If the answer is just you or just you and your family, that's, that needs to change. That needs to change. In Acts 2.42, we read in our scripture reading, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, in fellowship, in breaking of bread, and in prayers. And then right after that, when you start in verse 43 all the way down to verse 47, you read a description of a church that is impacting its community in such a powerful way that everybody goes, like, I fast anybody, I go, would you want to go to that church? People would be like, Yeah. People are generous, they're kind, they praise God, that miracles are being done, people are getting saved, awesome, God's working. I would love to be a part of that church. Well, there's no mistake that it explains that that happens after it says this is what they did when they got together. And that part of it is they were involved in each other's life. They fellowshiped. 
Fellowship is a crucial part of Christianity. The word fellowship, it means communion, joint participation, mutual association, intimate sharing, a gift jointly contributed. It describes a, like the idea of a partnership, the share one has in the whole of something. Like you didn't know it, but when you got saved, and maybe you didn't, you didn't, that wasn't necessarily the decision you were signing up for. But when you gave your life to Christ and you were born again, you were made part of a family and you became a partner with us. You became a partner with everybody here, all the believers all throughout the world. We learned, this is no surprise, we learned about this relationship we have with one another all throughout Ephesians. In Ephesians 2, in, in verses 19 through 22, Paul explains that now you are therefore no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints, and you're of the household, the family of God. You're built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building fitly framed together grows into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you also are built together for a habitation of God through the Spirit. Then we got to chapter 4, and Paul began talking about worthy church life, and we talked about how every joint fitly framed together, connected to each other, doing its part. This is just like the practical, like you're watching the practical way that, that Paul and the Ephesians intera- inter- interacted and intersected with one another because of the love they had for each other that he's been teaching us to do. Jesus created the church of whom are all those who are in Christ. They're all apart. He's the cornerstone. The Bible is our foundation, the, the thing the apostles and prophets gave us. And we are the house being built together until Jesus returns to catch his bride away. I'm glad we have this awesome facility that we can meet in, but this is not the church. This building is not the church. You're the church. You're the church. Impacting the world around us like Acts 2 describes requires all of us to embrace our family like we see here in Ephesians. I will, it's ironic because I'll talk to people sometimes who are, they don't go to church and, you know, I'll meet them at the store or something, start sharing the gospel, find out they're a believer, but, you know, oh, where do you go to church? I don't go to church. You know, why don't you go to church? And one of the common answers when I hear that is, well, because I don't see the things happening in the church that I saw in the book of Acts. I'm like, well, yeah, that, you're Why? Like, how do, you, how do you expect Acts 2.43 through 47 to happen if you're not doing Acts 2.42? And for some weird reason, we get this idea that, like, we're supposed to come to church, and that's where those things happen. Like, you show up to church, and there's no miracles in the church anymore. Do you think that the guy who was lame, that Peter said to him, he said, silver and gold have I none, but what I have unto you, I give unto you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, stand up and walk. Do you think that happened in a church service? No, it tells us where it happened. On the way to the temple. It was on the way. When you read about some of these happening, they were happening from house to house. They were happening. I hear people say, why don't we see miracles today? And I'm like, where are you going? I see them all the time. So I don't have that viewpoint. I don't, haven't come to that conclusion. Now, I have the privilege of having a front row seat in the sense that people tend to come to me rather than me have to go to them. But don't, don't blame the church because you're not going like you're not there, you're not a part of it, you're not experiencing it. It doesn't mean it's not happening. Now, part of doing what Acts 2.42 describes involves our public assembly times. Uh, Paul, whoever wrote Hebrews, I think it was Paul, but I might be wrong, probably not. 
Don't think I am. In Hebrews 10, 24 and 25, he's talking to Christians who are really struggling. They're under heavy persecution. Their lives are really hard because of it. And they're thinking about just ditching Christianity and going back to the Old Testament sacrifices. And so Paul, whoever wrote Hebrews, builds this argument over 10 chapters where he says, why would you go anywhere else? Jesus is better than the angels. Jesus is better than Moses. Jesus is better than Aaron. Jesus is better than the old covenant. He just goes on and on, better than Levitical priesthood. He goes on and on and on. Jesus is superior. He's better. Why would you go anywhere else? And then after explaining that Jesus is better, he comes to now the so what in chapter 10. And he says now, understanding that Jesus is far better, he says, instead of pulling away, he says, come closer. Instead of shirking back or giving up, he says, press in. And part of his immediate application of what they should do instead of what they're thinking about doing is he says in verses 24 and 25 of chapter 10, and let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works. How are we going to do that? Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. He says, instead of pull away, you need to get closer with others. You need to to connect more. You need to be with each other more so that you can provoke each other to love more and be more faithful to the Lord, do good works. If I show up to church and I'm like, how was your week? It's like, awful, man. I had two opportunities to share the gospel and I totally blew it. And then, but somebody says, it's okay, man. Did you take it to the Lord? I did. But well, you know what? He wants to use you this week. If I just stay by myself, I don't get that. Or if I just say hi, I don't get that. And so that's why I mentioned last week when people say, how are you doing? I tell the truth. I'm discouraged. I'm a little bummed about this. Not feeling well. Why? I need help. I need prayer. I need encouragement. I need all those things. Like I need the body of Christ. I need more than just, hi, how you doing? So part of it does involve our public assembly times, but it's certainly more than that. The, The Ephesians didn't just love Paul and he, them, because they all met one day for a few hours one day a week. He says, let us consider one another to provoke unto love and good works. That word consider, it means to fix your eyes or your mind upon each other. They invested into each other's lives. Let's be those who do the same. Amen? Now, real quick, before we get back to Ephesians 6, if you're thinking, well, it feels like nobody invests into me. Well, I have to ask the question, are you investing into others? The one another scriptures don't say be loved by another or be received by another or be served by another or be preferred by another. It commands us to go out and do those things. Christianity works in reverse of how the world works. It is calls us to deny self, take up our cross, and follow him. And Jesus was completely other-centered. He was never self-centered. And so I promise you this, if you will take the step to invest into others and keep doing so, don't give up because you think, well, I'm not getting any return. No one's investing into me. You're going to be disappointed if you do it. If somehow you're trying to measure it out and make it fair or even just make it even remotely, like I just want to see something on the other side of the scale, you will be looking for that and you will be disappointed. 
I promise you, though, if you will take the step to invest in others and keep doing so, you will find the fellowship you're longing for. I promise you. Because Jesus said, whosoever seeks to save his life will lose it. But whosoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will find it. You will find it. Because Jesus doesn't lie. Now, to ensure that the Ephesians heard an accurate report of Paul's experience, Paul sends a trusted member of his team, this guy, Tychicus. And you may have heard his name, Tychicus, or Tychicus, the chi or the, uh, the chi is how we would say that Greek letter, but most people think it's Tychicus. I'm not going to fight you if you disagree with me. This guy, he's first mentioned in Acts 20, verse 4. He was from the Roman province of Asia, the same region of Ephesus, although we don't know which church he was from in that area. He joined Paul's team on Paul's third missionary trip, and he remained on Paul's team when Paul was released from prison the first time. Paul dispatched Tychicus to Ephesus during his second imprisonment because he wanted Tychicus to free up Timothy. Timothy was the lead pastor in Ephesus at the time, and he wanted him to be the interim pastor, Tychicus, so that Timothy could travel to join Paul in Rome for a bit because Paul knew that he was going to be executed. It mentions here that he is a beloved brother. Literally, it's the beloved brother. This was his name. This is how people knew him. People said Tychicus and be like, oh, dude, I love that guy. That's what people would think about when they would think about him. It means someone who's dear, the object of one's affection. This guy was a special man, well-known throughout the church for just being the guy that everybody loved. And it doesn't surprise me that he was loved by believers all over the place because every time he's mentioned in the Bible, he's serving someone else. Every time. There is something special about a love that does not seek its own. There is. And when you are not seeking your own, that's how you know you're a true friend. Well, I'm not getting enough out of this relationship. I think you need to think those words because they're telling a story about you, not about them. It also mentions here that he was a faithful minister or literally a dependable or reliable deacon. That's what the word there, diakonos. Every local church in the New Testament had elders and deacons. Elders were primarily responsible for the spiritual needs of the church. Deacons were primarily responsible for the practical needs of the church. That doesn't mean a deacon could never teach the Bible or that an elder didn't pick up trash. The idea was, though, is that their main focus was different, and that's why they had those different offices. Tychicus filled in as interim pastor for Timothy, so clearly he was able to do the work of an elder too. In other words, he was just a guy who was willing to do whatever was needed, and when you gave him a task, you could depend on him to do it. And what a great, a great character trait to have if that describes you. Now, why does he explain how special Tychicus is? Is because they didn't, Ephesians didn't know him. They knew about him, but they didn't, they didn't ha- have a relationship with him. So Paul's essentially saying, listen, you can trust this guy. Everything you've heard about him, it's true. You can trust him. And with all the false prophets out there, particularly the ones that critiqued Paul, uh, this would be important for the Ephesians to know that this is a guy they can trust. Especially when we consider verse 22 tells us that Paul expected Tychicus to do more than just give a, a more detailed message. Look at verse 22. He says, uh, he'll make known to you all things whom I have sent unto you for the same purpose that you might know our affairs. But here's the second thing, his second job, that he might comfort your hearts. The word comfort here means to encourage or exhort someone when they're in a time of sadness or sorrow. Paul, 
he did not plant the church in Ephesus. In fact, the Bible tells us there were about a dozen men who'd come to faith in Christ when Paul first visited the city. But he did become their first pastor. When he met them, he found them, he said, hey, uh, I see you guys are believers. He goes, but something's missing. Have, have, have you been, you know, has anybody told you about the Holy Spirit? And they're like, we don't know who the Holy Spirit is. Who's that? And so Paul began to teach them because they'd only heard the baptism of John the Baptist that need to repent and believe in the Messiah. And so they received, they were baptized with the Holy Spirit, some miracles happened, and then Paul became their pastor. So he stayed there for three years. It's the longest place that Paul stayed at in the book of Acts. A massive revival broke out in the city of Ephesus to the point that the idol industry was losing money and decided to instigate a riot against the Christians. Like people talk about when John Wesley would go preach the gospel in England, that bars would shut down. because all, It's not because they picketed the bars. It's because all the people got saved and stopped drinking. I'm not saying that voting and politics doesn't matter. I'm just saying right now, if you want to see change, go preach the gospel. People's lives change. You don't have to worry about any of that nonsense because you just have godly people all over doing good things, making good decisions. We read later on that the pastors from Ephesus were heavily impacted by Paul's news that he anticipated being arrested when he returned to Jerusalem. He was in such a hurry to get there, he said, guys, meet me on the beach in Miletus. We'll do a little pastor's conference here. And he did that with them. And then he explained to them at the end, he goes, guys, I don't think you're going to see me again. The Holy Spirit's warning me every, every day that everywhere I go, that if I go to Jerusalem, I'm going to be arrested. And so he says, I, I don't think I'm going to see you again. Acts chapter 20, verses 37 and 38 tells us that they, they wept sorely when they heard this news. It says in Acts 20, 37, they all wept sore and fell on Paul's neck and kissed him, sorrowing most of all for the words which he spoke, that they should not see his face anymore. These are their pastors. They're just they're wrecked because of, of this idea. It hadn't even happened yet, but they're wrecked by the idea that they'll never see him again. So when news is going to come in, and, and some of it's going to be good, yeah, I'm alive, I'm doing okay, but this is going on, this is going on, it's going to, his suffering is going to hit them hard. This is their, many of them is their mentor, their, their pastor, the person that probably they got saved through, maybe discipled them. They loved him, and, and it's going to hit them hard. So they needed to be encouraged in their sadness to keep moving forward, and that was Tychicus's job. Aren't you glad for the encouragers in the church? When you're just like floundering and you don't know what to do and you're down and they just set your feet on a good solid piece of ground. I have a very public part of the body of Christ and so I get tons of encouragement from so many people. But even then there are just some in the body of Christ who go out of their way to, to say something to me that puts my feet on firm ground again and gets me moving forward again. If you have that gift, if God's called you to that, play that part in the body of Christ, please use it because we need it. When you come to church or you get together with other believers, look for those who are experiencing sorrow and speak good words and true words into their hearts because the church always needs more guys like Tychicus. Well, Paul had his own encouraging words to speak to them, so he closes with that in verses 23 and 24. He says, peace be to the brethren and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's wish for them first off is I wish that you would experience the peace 
And you, my brothers, would experience the peace that comes from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Peace means freedom from worry, tranquility in your heart, harmony in your heart. Paul wished, before he said anything in this letter to them, in Ephesians 1, 2, he tells them, he says, grace be to you and peace from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. And now he closes, after he said everything, he's taught them everything he wanted to say, he wants them to be left with that again. He wants them to know, like, hey, everything we talked about, don't forget this. I reminded you of it when we started, and I'm reminded of you again. God is for you. He's not against you. You don't ever have to worry about that. Find rest and tranquility from all the world's cares in that truth. Because then it doesn't matter who's against you. Because if God be for us, who could be against us? It doesn't matter. And then his second wish for them is that love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Love with faith, the love that accompanies someone who has trusted the Lord. Paul wished for them to be a church that loves one another with the supernatural love that comes only from God. Yes, they would be sad by the news of the difficult times he was going through. And you know, some of them might even be scared. But Paul says, guys, this is no time to turn on each other. This was the time to love one another even more. And if you don't know it, Tuesday, this week, it's about to get real. Because there's going to be people on either side who are going to be mad, no matter what happens. And I am praying for safety and security and and no craziness and nonsense. But the reality is we live in some crazy times. And so these two wishes are something I wish for our church. That we would be those who rest in the peace we have with God knowing that he's for us, no matter how scary it might be outside these four walls. That we would love one another and be patient with one another and be kind towards each other instead of nitpick and devour each other in these stressful times. I was appalled in the last few elections how I see Christians turning on each other during this time. Absolutely appalled. You came if you call yourself a Christian and you voted for this. Really? Bible has literally nothing to say about voting. Literally. Not a single thing. There's no such thing about a good or bad Christian in regards to voting processes. There's no such thing. As a Christian, if you, I'm going to get in trouble for this. As a Christian, if you decide to say, you know what, I don't think any of them are godly, I'm not going to vote. That's a conscience issue for you. You should not ever be upset at someone. Because the Bible doesn't say, go out and do this. Because we are citizens of heaven, not the United States of America. Now, I would say this to you as a citizen of the United States of America. If you would like to have a say in how life is around here, you should vote wisely. And the Bible says that righteousness exalts a nation, but wickedness is a reproach to any people. So you should vote for righteousness. You should vote for people who stand for righteousness. If you're going to do it. Soapbox off. (laughs) But whatever happens, whatever happens, when Tuesday night ends and Wednesday morning starts and all the fallout occurs, you are still in Christ and you still have to be an ambassador for Christ. Regardless. What's going to happen if so-and-so wins? For me, literally nothing. 
Well, they might come for your finances or your kids or this or that or anything. Well, that's something the church has experienced before. And it tells us how to handle those things. So there are brothers and sisters all throughout the world who experience those things. So why am I any different because I live in the United States of America in this time period? I'm not. I need to go out. I need to walk with Jesus. I need to be an ambassador for Christ no matter what happens, no matter what. Things go the way I want it to. Things don't go the way I want it to. There's nothing wrong about wanting it to go a certain way. But the point is, when it's all said and done, I have to get my feet on the ground and keep moving forward with Christ. I need to love my brothers and sisters, not nitpick them. They voted for so-and-so. How could they do that? Yeah, you did some dumb things too when you were in Christ. You've made mistakes too. You've had areas you needed to still grow too, didn't you? Don't you? I still do now. Let's not be those who nitpick and devour each other in these stressful times. Let's be those who love one another, be patient and kind. Those things only come from being in Christ. They come from getting our eyes on Him instead of all the craziness that's out there. So where are your eyes right now? You know, are you experiencing God's peace in the midst of everything that's outside these four walls? Are you growing in love for the people who are seated around you right now? Is your heart tender towards those who are seated around you right now? Or do you get irritated or frustrated easily with them? Paul has one final wish for them. Verse 24. Grace be with all them that love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. Literally, it's the grace. So it's referring to the favor that God gives to those who are in Christ. Grace is not just for our initial salvation. It's not just for justification. When I got saved, I knew I needed a Savior. I knew I wasn't a good person. I knew I wasn't going to get to heaven on my good works. And that was not ever something that was in doubt. But my everyday life was very much a legal relationship with God. Well, I can't read my Bible today. I did this yesterday. Or I can't pray right now because I did this earlier in the morning. I had a very legal relationship with God, and I didn't operate in grace all throughout the day. And I'm so grateful for when I started going through Romans at Bible college and learning that grace is necessary for every day of my life. I need God's unearned, unmerited favor for every moment of every day. I don't ever earn anything from Him. You know, in that passage in Romans chapter 6 where it talks about our sanctification, it says, guys, you need to reckon yourself to be dead to sin and alive to God. You need to choose not to let sin reign in your mortal body to obey its lust. You need to yield your members as instruments of righteousness unto God and holiness. We do. Romans 6, 11 through 13. But don't forget verse 14 when he says, for why we do it? For sin shall not have dominion over you because you're not under law, you're under grace. Every day I can get up and go, Lord, we're going to walk with you today. I am reckoning myself to be dead to sin. I don't have to do this today. And when I make a choice to be obedient to you today, and I yield my mouth, my ears, my heart, my, my mind, my, my taste buds, all those things, I yield them up to you to be an instrument for righteousness today. And Lord, I am confident I'm going to go out in victory, not because I can do it, but because I'm under your grace. He says, I want you guys to experience that. But he mentions it's for a specific group, with all them that love our Lord Jesus in sincerity, which it's probably not the best translation. It means undyingly, incorruptibly, unceasingly. In other words, Paul wishes for those who have a never-diminishing love for Jesus, a love that even death cannot quench. 
He says, I want you to experience all the grace that God wants to pour out upon you. You say, well, what about those who are struggling with their love for Jesus' will? Paul says, tough, I don't wish that for you. No, that's not what he's saying. But maybe let me give you some perspective. Me and Bev, generally speaking, have prayed for all of our kids. Lord, if they get out of line, bust them. Bust them. You might say, that's horrible. Why would you want God to bust your kids? Why? So they don't get further down the road and make a really, really bad decision. Bust them. You know why I'm a pastor? Because I need a short leash. God called me to this to, to keep me close. We sing that song, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. That's me. It's my heart. It's prone to wander very easily. So God puts me on a very short leash because it's extremely difficult to get carnal when at any moment a phone call can come and someone says, my spouse just died. My child's in the hospital. My spouse just left me. I don't know what to do. My husband OD'd. What do you do at that moment? What do you do at that moment when you're carnal? Because the reality is, I got nothing. I got nothing for them. I got one pitch. I've got one song. I'm a one-hit wonder. All I can give them is Jesus. And if I'm not close to Jesus, I got nothing. There have been so many occasions in my life when I just go through a very short period of where I'm not doing well, and the Lord's like, how long are you going to do this, Will? Because you know what's coming. And more often than not, the phone will ring, and then somebody crying, and the Lord's just like, you ready? You ready to get back with me? Because this... You got nothing for him, but I've got everything. So I got to keep real short books with God. <laughs> I got, he's got me on a short leash because it's what's best for me. And so what I think Paul's saying here is, maybe if you're out there struggling with the Lord's love, he's like, you need to fall on your face some so that I don't want God to just bless you. I want you to fall on your face a bit so that you can know how much you need him every day. And then he says, Amen. It's all true. Everything I said to you, it's all true. And it is. There is a sense in this closing here where Paul echoes the words of Jesus when Jesus was asked what the greatest commandment was. And what did Jesus say? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. With this closing wish, Paul brings it back to what it's all about. A relationship with Jesus. Knowing Jesus, right? Loving Jesus. And Paul's wishes in these last few verses is that they would love Jesus and love one another. Isn't that what Jesus said? This is the greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. And the second's like unto it. Love your neighbor as yourself. We could have said that, and that's pretty much exactly what Paul's saying here. And so the reminder in the close of all the doctrine and all the practical teaching is that Christianity is about relationships. First with the Lord, and then with one another. Anything else is just another dead religion of man. Anything else, no matter how helpful it might be in society, anything else is just another dead religion of man. And so, when we consider that we're gonna take the Lord's Supper now, what a great thought to leave us with here at the end of the letter. 
What a great thought to place in our hearts and in our mind as we remember what Christ did for us. Because in taking the bread and the cup, we declare those two things exactly. We declare. When we hold the bread and the cup, I love Jesus because he first loved me. I want everyone to know I love him back. But we also declare something because we're not doing it alone. We are declaring that we share this love with all those around us who are doing the same exact thing. If you read all of Ephesians chapter 2, it kind of sums up the Lord's Supper. You were dead in trespasses and sins, but God in his abundant mercy saved you by his grace through faith. And in saving you by grace through faith, he brought you into this family that now you are the house of God. And so when we do this, there's, there's such a common ground. Like, like you, you can look over and you could say, what are you doing? And their answer is going to be, well, I was lost. I was a sinner and I was destined for hell. But Jesus loved me enough that he died for me on the cross. And I hold these things now because I follow him and I love him back. I, I've repented of my sins and I, I want to say thank you to him again. And it doesn't matter how different they might be from you, employment-wise, economic status, social status, career, skin color, ethnic background, cultural background, life background. What are you going to answer if they say, why are you here doing this? You're going to say the same exact thing. I was a sinner and I was headed for hell, but God loved me and his son died for me. I'm so grateful for that, and I want to tell him thank you because I, I follow him now. Every single person in this room that we, we share this together, that's our declaration as well. And so, you know, as the team comes up and they get ready to lead us in song, I really want to challenge you this morning. As we're singing, if you have aught against a brother or sister, take care of that before we celebrate the Lord's Supper. If if you've been wronged and you're hurting and you haven't spoken to them or you've been treating them differently or you've been shying back or whatever it might be, or if you've been at odds, maybe it's both of you have messed up, whatever it might be, you need to take care of that in your own heart before you celebrate this. I'll share a quick story. I had three guys I was roomed with pretty much almost every semester at Bible college. We were very close. We talked all the time. We did everything together. We worked together in the same place, and I don't even know what the argument was about, but we got in an argument over something doctrinally as we're peeling potatoes, all four of us. And me, can't believe it would be me, me, and one of the guys, we got into it and we said some pretty harsh things. He said some pretty harsh things to me, I said some pretty harsh things to him. Well, it was very awkward after that because we're always around, but now we weren't. Like now we weren't talking to each other, me and him weren't talking, so it was just awkward everywhere. Well, every Tuesday at school, we would have koinonia, which was basically just a, similar to our night of prayer. Sometimes it'd be a teaching, but we'd have time of worship, and then we'd always celebrate the Lord's Supper. Well, we always sat together for koinonia. But this time, I sat down on one side, and one of my roommates sat with me. He was way on the other side. I didn't know this. He was way on the other side with our other roommate. And, you know, we're getting to this place of the Lord's Supper, and the Lord's like, really, you're going to do this? And you're not right with your brother? Like, this goes against everything that we're doing right now. I just couldn't do it. I'm like, 
You know, I had all my arguments, but he said this, and it was wrong, and it hurt, and whatever. And the Lord's like, end? End? What about the cross? And eventually I got up, and lo and behold, as I go in the back of the sanctuary, and there's a lobby similar to this, bigger, but in the back, and he's on the other side of the lobby, standing up. And we meet in the middle. It's not like Kermit and Miss Piggy, but, you know... <laughs> You know, we just apologized and we embraced and then all four of us went and sat down together and we took the Lord's Supper. If you're going to hold on to that, it is, it is missing the point. So as we sing, normally we have like a time of quiet and reflection. We're not going to do that this morning. But as we sing, if you have ought against a brother or sister, then take care of that before we celebrate the Lord's Supper. First in your own heart and then if necessary, Get up and go talk to them. Get up and fix it. Because it's not worth it just going through the motions. So Lord, we give you this time right now and and we recognize, Lord, that if anyone had an argument to not participate in this, it would be you. It would never be us. It would always be you. Because Lord, we have not just wronged you before we were saved, but we have betrayed you after we were saved. And yet, Lord, you invite us to this table with you. You invited your disciples there with you and you shared this meal with them and and you said, continue doing it in remembrance of me. And so Lord, we choose to do that now and I pray for anyone who's really struggling with unforgiveness or bitterness or anger or hurt with another person that they've, things are not right between them. I pray that you'd remind them, Lord, that ultimately when they, they come to you, you heal all those hurts, you bind all those wounds, And the truth is, nothing that has happened to us can can weigh against what we've done to you. And you've forgiven us. So Lord, help us to do that now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.